Today's sermon is drawn from multiple passages in Ephesians, uh, beginning with Ephesians 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm really struck again and again as we hover, our our central text, as you well know, those of your guests wouldn't know this, but it's from Ephesians 1, 15 through 20. But I'm repeatedly arrested by this concept, it's right here, that Paul is convinced that there has the the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that's what he describes the Holy Spirit, is utterly necessary. And prayer to him is indispensable for the achievement of any significant goal out of this time right here. It it, it breathes in the text. In other words, the possibility that the preaching of the word would have power, that we would have power to see, to apply, to to contemplate, to understand, to enact, to, to, to change, to be transformed, lies in the work and presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, uh, we ask for the Holy Spirit to overflowing. And I'm constantly asking you for that anointing that comes from you, for myself. But uh, that's not enough. Father, there's not a person in earshot that does not need your anointing work, your direct work of wisdom and revelation. Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill up what is so lacking in our understanding and even in my proclamation. Create understanding, repentance, life, and perspective that you desire from us and in us. Otherwise, um, my work is hopeless and our attention is fruitless. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are so many. And come in glory for your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the heavenly 
places. Here, we, what I decided to do was to kind of just, just go whole hog on this expression as it's here in, in Ephesians. Ephesians is the only place in the whole Bible where this expression is used, in the heavenly places. It's exclusive. You see the five references there in our text. And you, and you can see, as we go through Ephesians, we'll return to this, and I won't have time to go into each, each section with, with significance or significant detail. We'll kind of brush over some. But I, what I wanted to do this, this tonight is, is, is to kind of get at that perspective where, where we think or you think in a category called heavenly places. And I think that's kind of the need of the hour. It, one of my great heroes in theology is Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, one of the great Princeton theologians. And, and Warfield said that one of the great definitions of Christianity, and you've heard me say this before, and I'm making sure you know it's not me who said it, it's him. Christianity is an unembarrassed supernaturalism. Unflinching, unembarrassed, it's not embarrassed to claim and to live and to believe in the supernatural. I guess that's one of the reasons I think this is so important to me and, and so important and so vital is because we, we live in such a scientific age and, we, and the accomplishments and, and, the, and, the, and the reach and the insight of science is profound and it's getting more profound all the time. The James Webb Telescope is now sitting at a Lagrange point many, many miles away from the Earth now, sitting in a, in a perfect orbit where it can see, it can see out into the cosmos. Uh, there's a big, a big, huge sail, behind, a big like, a, a umbrella behind it to block it from the sun so it can cool to some negative 400 degrees so that it can never make a mistake about perceiving the infrared. It's brilliant, brilliant work. And these are all opening up to us. But one of the dangers here, and one of the dangers I see, and one of the dangers, I, you know what, and I don't just see it out there, I see it in here. <laughs> I see it in me. I was well-trained, I, 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 I earned my marks in, in the educational system of America, and, I, and, and it, it produced a, a, a scientific materialist. If I can't see it, if I can't taste it, if I can't touch it, if I can't smell it, I'm not sure it's real. And I, and I think we're all pretty much in the same boat. We, we, if we don't, if we're, not, if we're not completely convinced that way, we're at least suspicious about it, guarded, or maybe agnostic in some way, uncertain that we can know, and things like that. And so that's one of the reasons why I constantly, this, this, this expression. Now, that's, that's what it's a vital desk. Why, why does he keep saying it to them? Why is in the heavenly places so vital to those Ephesians? We've touched on this before, but the Ephesus was the epicenter of Diana worship, the worship of Artemis. It was one of the great wonders of the world was the statue, uh, a pornographic statue for all intents and purposes, of Diana. And they revered that because she was carved, literally carved from a meteorite. Now, they didn't know what a meteorite was in the ancient world, but all they knew is she was carved by something that fell from heaven. And therefore, she was doubly holy, triply holy. And that, that city of Ephesus had become wealthy upon that worship. That in its position in, uh, geographically. But most of the worship was extraordinary. And, and we know Paul's experience there. Paul was almost killed there. The, 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 the worship of Diana, it was, it was the lifeblood 
of the economic power of that city. Much like so many cities today. It's like a form of tourism, of religious tourism, I guess. And so, uh, and so, so Paul, I think, includes this term to constantly put before that little church that don't be afraid of the God who fell out of heaven because you're seated there. <laughs> Your God sits enthroned, and you're enthroned with him. Don't be afraid, but, but there is a reality. There is a reality of heavenly place. And I find that kind of intriguing. I find that, that whole cosmology, the whole view of the world kind of draws me. And I'm intrigued, but I want to know more about it. I want to share it with you. I want, I want us to ha- adopt a perspective that is sensitive to, that's aware of, that, that is challenged by this idea. But you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, I sent the text to, I, I don't like doing this many texts for, 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 for a sermon. I, it, it, it's a lot of information. And I uh, I, don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's helpful or not, but it was one of those moments where I sent, I sent the text up, I was working in it, and I realized, I don't, the text that, I really, that really sums up this message tonight is, is actually Ephesians 1.10. Ephesians 1.10, and I, because there, something mysterious, and I didn't touch on it when I was preaching through that section, because I don't think I understood it. That's one thing that Ephesians is doing to me, is <laughs> humbling my understanding. Because I didn't really understand it, but it says something that Christ came to unite heaven and earth. He came to unite heaven and earth. Let me say it a third time, because I don't think, there's not a good theological category from this academically. He came to unite heaven and earth. You know, it's interesting, as I was, was, mulling on this, mulling on this, I'm preaching and teaching about this, is that is, I, I didn't even see it. I, it's funny how invisible these things are to us. We're so used to these words. We're so used to these things we do, these rituals and these, and our Savior, but our Savior taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, what? As it is in heaven. What is that? but a prayer for the uniting of heaven and earth that we have in Jesus. That is what Jesus is coming to do. So so both in the theology of the text and in our own prayers tonight and and in the way we are taught to pray is this idea, and where there's a call to be united, it it goes without saying, doesn't it, that it's, it's affirming a fracture, right? There's been a fracture, there's been a division, there's been a break, there's been a, there's a problem. And I, I was thinking about how far to go in this. <laughs> but the problem is mapped out for us mysteriously in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what these heavenly places are like, or, or what's going on there, or the, or, their organization. or their, it, it just gives hints here and there. there two of the hints that the, that, that the fracture between heaven and earth began in heaven. It begins in heaven. We don't know when. We really, we don't have a timeline for this. Ezekiel 28 uh, and, and Isaiah 14 uh, want to talk about uh, men, uh, kings of the earth, who in their pride and arrogance resemble some being that we don't, we hear about in the Bible. Lucifer or Satan. And this being aspired to be as great as God. Now, to have been in the face of God and to think you could be like God, it gives you a, just a glimpse of how powerful this creature was. 
and yet he fell. Ezekiel talks about him walking in amongst fiery stones. And, oh, it's just mystical and marvelous. We don't know. But the fracture began there. That's what we do now. We do there's a fracture. And that he aspired and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he sought to be like God most high. And he was... Now there's been fanciful recreations of this, recreations of this Milton and uh, Paradise Lost and things like that. And, uh, and there's a lot of mythology that grew up around it. I'm not interested in the mythology. I'm interested only in what the Word says. And the Word tells us there's a reality there. The fracture happens first on that side. But then that side, the, the heavenly side of reality, the heavenly dimension of all re- created things, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that, 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 that fracture that began on that side enters this side. And we know where it enters. If you know your, if you know your Bible lessons, your Sunday school lessons, it enters with Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent to deceive, to twist the words of God, to corrupt the word, to corrupt. Oh, it's so spiteful. To corrupt. Oh, it's so malicious. To corrupt that which represented For God made us in his image. And what better revenge for an enemy? If I can't hurt the creator, let me hurt what looks like him. Let me wound it, destroy it. Let me, oh, and the fracture, the fracture, the fracture. That makes sense of Ephesians 1.10. That it is Christ's saying, it is Christ's goal, it is Christ's work, it is Christ's power, it is the demonstration of his power, the consummation of all things, to unite, to reunite, to bring back heaven and earth. Now, and we're going to touch on this. I want to explain my terms and, and spend some time in the text uh, that I think will be helpful. But what I'm hoping here is that because of fractal to to establish tonight, to work out tonight, to to gift to you tonight, if the Holy Spirit will help us, because a fracture has happened in reality between the earthly places and the heavenly places, we must become heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That's a twist. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that? This is an old one. Gina, you recognize it, right? Well, this is an old, this is an old uh, dis- disrespect to Christians. See? All, the, all, the, all the folks older than me are all nodding because they've all heard it. And somebody would sigh or shake their head and go, oh, yeah, he's so heavenly minded. He's no earthly good. You ever heard that? <laughs> it's, an old dis- it's an old dis for, the, for super spiritual people. And I can honestly say as a, as a pastor and as a Christian that I have met Christians who probably flip the bill on that one. <laughs> in other words, the idea is that they're not grounded in the real world. They're simply somewhere in the, in, in, in the, in the clouds. But, 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 and there may be people who typified that, but I think that expression was meant to get at an unbelief about the heavenly world, about the heavenly universe, the heavenly dimension of all. And to say that really in the end, can somebody who really is convinced about what is it? What's the other one? Hallelujah in the sky. Pie in the sky. By and by. You know, those images. Those are all mocking. Mocking those who would affirm. Mocking. And I, I, how can we do that? How can we do that? How can we? We can't do that with, with Paul. We can't do it. Again and again, he, he is in earnest that these folks, and, and as, as the apostles speaking the words of God to us tonight, he he is earnest that we have a perspective that knows and understands 
that there is a heavenly place. There's a heavenly dimension to things. And that's where we need to begin. And so we need a cosmology of heavenly places. <laughs> we just do. What's a cosmology? Cosmos is the word for universe, and logos is the word for study. And a cosmology is just a way of understanding everything, a way of sum total of all things. Uh, cosmological work is the great work of physicists and, and astronomers in this age. They are trying to build a cosmology based only on what they can see and, 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 and observe. Now, uh, Christianity, as I've said, I'm defining it as an unembarrassed supernaturalism. Now, we know that our scripture is a, the biblical pre-scientific cosmology uh, is, is different. And sometimes people make fun of it. I, I remember uh, every once in a while, if you, if you went to school or sometimes in a... In a, in a, in a uh, in a class, a professor would like to make fun of a, a biblical view of worldview. I mean, such a primitive worldview. You know, there's hell underneath, and then there's our world, and then there's heaven above, you know, and, and uh, God lives in the stars. And, we, and the scriptures are not that naive or foolish. They really aren't. The, they do, the word heaven is used to talk about celestial bodies, like the sun, moon, stars, all that. It, it, heavens, that word is used that way, the Hashemayim. But it's not merely used that way. These biblical writers are aware of the concept, it's, it's more primitive in the Old Testament than it grows in the New, of an idea of a place where God is. Something's called Abraham's bosom. Now, this idea of a place where God dwells. Uh, what Isaiah sees in the temple, in that numinous vision of the holy glowing fog of the glory of God, and the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. These are visions. And this concept of heaven, the scriptures, you just look at the context, you'll be able to distinguish between uh, what is being described as a heavenly dimension versus the sky, the firmament, or, or something like that. And the scriptures are naive, or not naive or foolish. Even though they are pre-scientific, they are not naive and foolish. And so don't be deceived when people kind of try to mock these kind of things and think about them. And, I, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll begin with why. One of the things that it, it kind of irritates me is, one of the theories that tries to account for quantum, the quantum is the subatomic nature of reality, tries to say, oh, we can't understand it, but one of the ways we can explain the math, which is beyond anybody in this room and probably anybody in the city, it's only a handful of men and women who can understand the math of string theory, but, but the math implies an amazing, an amazing result. There must be dimensions inside reality. Uh, up to 11, sometimes up to 20 <laughs> different dimensions in the geometry of subatomic matter. Now, they, they simply present that as a solution for what they can't understand. And I sit there and go, that's not fair. Why do you get to do it and I don't? <laughs> it's because, well, it's implied by the math. But it requires a, a, a leap of faith, a, a, an understanding of reality that reality has in it, tucked in it, uh, some sort of solution that we can never perceive where reality is folded in on its... I don't understand it. Talk about strings and everything. My only point in this is that the scriptures present the idea that there is a dimension in this room, a dimension present, another, a dimension that we cannot perceive in material. Uh, dimension, another dimension that is the heavenly. There's a, I mean, it's kind of odd, I mean, it's, but, but it's everywhere present in the scriptures. But there is another dimension around us, a living place 
of spiritual reality in the heavenly places. We need to adopt this biblical cosmology. I, I wanted to, the way I described it here was uh, the place of spirit and time, as, a as opposed to our earthly places, which are the places of space and time. Which is interesting because even the concept earth and, in the Bible has different references. It can talk about material, right? But it can also talk about our, our moral selves, our earthly self, our, our fleshly self, and things like that. The, the principles of the world, and things like that. So the scriptures have a sophisticated, they really do, they have a, a, a self-awareness of a, a view of reality. And so the reason I, why am I spending all this time to talk about this? I think that the, when it says in the heavens, it's implying that there is an extension, there's a place beyond the, well, we know the observable universe at this point is 93 billion light years across. And I figure spiritual reality must be coextensive with physical reality. So, heavenly places are super big, just like this universe is super big. Does it make sense? I don't know why we would. It's vast. It's huge. If it actually exists as a dimension of this world. And I think that it does. I think that's what the scriptures teach. Now, what's the point here? Is there anything we can do? Anything helpful about this, Chris? Anything helpful I can use at work this week? Well, I think one of the things it does is, is, it, is it calls you to stop uh, siloing. Do you do this? You silo, you, you kind of have your work self, and then you got your church self, and then you got your home self, and you, and you really, you don't think about your work self having, doing commerce in this world with code or with, with analysis or with, with retail, wherever you're at, or your school. You don't think that there's a heavenly dimension inside that. But that is, that is an inevitable conclusion of this worldview. And we got to stop that. Stop, stop siloing yourself. So it, it, it's very easy to do. Hey, look, look, one of the reasons we silo things is because it's kind of nice to not think about the heavenly dimension when you got to crack down and deal with some garbage at work and somebody you don't like. And, and it, it, can take, it can take a little bit of an imagination, and not just imagination, but almost a force of will to think, oh, wait a second, there is a heavenly undercurrent, there is a, there is a spiritual reality to the life I'm living around me with the people I commerce with every day in every way. And even the way in which I do what I do, whether it be legal or professional or, or whatever, whatever we're, wherever we are. And, and it's a, such an encouragement to me. And then I want to, I guess they all partake in this idea of a heavenly dimension. That's weird. Ukraine, probably, there's, a, there's a spiritual dimension to that. I, I don't always know what it is. It's not always clear. Remember, this, some of these things are veiled to us. They're not, they're not just transparent. But I have a second thing I want to explore here, just, just briefly. Which is more real? This? Or the spiritual, which is more real? You know, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful interpretation. The uh, in his fanciful, in his fanciful book, The Great Divorce, he describes people from purgatory visiting heaven, but they can't even walk on the grass in heaven because the grass hurts their feet. Because heaven and heavenly places are more real than any other place. Just because it's not material doesn't mean it's not made of another material. 
It simply is not this material. And we think of what is immaterial as doesn't exist. That's, that's absurd. That's absurd. It simply isn't true. What is more real? <laughs> what is more real? Heaven or this physical world? The heavenly dimension or the physical one? Food for thought. Maybe they're just equally real. Even that's a stretch for our hearts and minds, isn't it? In our imagination. Now, where do I want to take this? Well, one of the reasons we need this so much, because a fracture has happened in reality between the earthly and heavenly places, we, we, we have to become more heavenly-minded to be earthly good. And the way that one of this leads us to is a proper diagnosis and solution from heavenly places. What am I talking about here? Well, the bad news is in this text, and the bad news that Paul is eager to get to, is, we looked at it in Ephesians 2, verse 1 last week, you are dead, were dead, he's talking to his believers, were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. One of the biblical assumptions is that those who are not partakers in the life of Jesus and know, know, his, know his death on the cross as their rescue, as their forgiveness, guess what? They are dead. They are spiritually dead. This idea of spiritual death is very profound. I, I mean, it's, think about what you think about death. Uh, dead men tell no tales. Right? <laughs> um, I love that Mark Twain, uh, uh, two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. <laughs> you know, things like dead. To be dead is to lack all perception, all ability, all self-knowledge. All, all, to be dead is not be able to will, to do. To be dead... And this is a description of all those separated from God and his life and the knowledge of Jesus. Why is now this is where this idea of being heavenly minded is so powerful because it gives you an opportunity to diagnose what's going on around you. You know, a lot of times it's very hard to understand people's indifference or to understand why your own children I have to share the same grief with my boys, not, not really following after Christ. And, and where spiritual death is, it, 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 I think two things happen out of this diagnosis when we, when we adopt the, heavenly, the perspective of a heavenly dimension. You'll understand that when you go, the people you go to school with, they're all dead. And, and I think two things come out of this. Compassion and mission. This insight this creates creates compassion and mission. The compassion first, what's the compassion here? Is that there's a reason why there's an indifference and an inability to reach them. The death is real and everything that it means and everything that it implies and everything that it entails about the physical world is, is, is if the heavenly world is more real than real, which I think it is, is even more real there. This is the death that Adam takes into his life and, in, and into his marriage to his wife. The profound, the true death. The heavenly one. The spiritual one. The reason that compassion is, is that I, it's, easy to, it's easy to write off people in the world as fools or as, as, as idiots or as, as people that we, we or dismiss them in their, in their inability to understand things or to, or, to, or to seek righteousness or to know God. And, 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 or or, or to, to be imperious with them. And we can't do that. We, what this is meant to arouse in us is a, a sense of, all right, so I'm going to give you a picture here, what I do. And this is, this is just a practice I've had in prayer, uh, and I've already done it with some people you know. 
And that is, I picture myself sometimes when I'm praying for people who don't know God. I'll do this with my sons. Is I'll, I'll picture just presenting their dead bodies to God. Like in his presence. Asking him to, to give them life. See, it, it creates a different view of prayer. You see, I, it creates an earnestness. You see, a different response than merely a dismissal or, or, you know, or, or frustration. But the second thing it creates is mission. You see, the, you know, some of the people you love and care about, that you laugh with and drink with and love and, and enjoy and watch movies with and, and, have, the great, and have the great conversation with, and they are, they're living in death. They have a living death by their spiritual death. And we, we need to be aroused by that vision. When we have that heavenly perspective at that moment, where our cosmology is finally, we're finally getting there, we're finally saying, oh, if this is true, if this be true, then my friend who I love is, is doomed, is suffering, is, it cannot see, cannot hope to see, can't even hope to, do dead people know they're dead? No. The dead don't know they're dead. The dead have no understanding. This heavenly perspective on spiritual death ought to create a sense of uh, alarm and desire for the people we do commerce with every single day. And, and I'll warrant, and I, I, I'm not trying to just you know, stick, the, stick the, the, the dagger in a little deeper, <laughs> but, and we, we are so careless to, to love these people even with prayer. Aren't we? You're praying for your bosses, for your workmates, for the people you love and your family. Are you in earnest? You know, I see a lot of animus and desire and passion about what's going on in Ukraine, and I think it's appropriate. But what's even more appropriate is that same animus, that same, that same earnestness, that same weeping for, we live in a city of death, and I I mean, it's just like every other city I've worked in. <laughs> They're all de- There's death everywhere around. I'm hoping that, you see, this is where we need the Holy Spirit. Can you see why? We need the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation to start getting in there because to think in these categories and to, en- to engage in some compassion that leads to mission is all great. And it gets a little intolerable. Like, oh, gosh, Chris, I don't, I don't know if I want this. And I, I, I promise you, you do. Because it's a work of the Spirit to arouse us and to passion for Him. That's the bad news. What's the good news? <laughs> Jesus, when He died on the cross for sinners, happened in all of reality. And this is where things get funky. Well, that's Psalm 110 we started with. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Uh, and they said, oh, you're a priest forever by the order of Melchizedek. Look, Jesus pointed out to the men of His day, the greatest minds of His age, He said, Tell me, do you understand this text? Tell me, who is, if David calls him Lord, and it doesn't make any sense. Who is he talking about? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Uh, You are a priest. What what does this mean? And when Jesus came as the God-man, that riddle got unpacked, and the disciples and the apostles loved this text. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews piggybacked on it. Because when Moses was ascended to the mountain, it says, God says, I'm going to show you a pattern. And you're going to build a pattern called a tabernacle with the holy of holies and the holy place and the sacrifice. And that's supposed to be a pattern 
of a heavenly purpose, of a heavenly reality. See, you get the idea? There's another dimension. There was another dimension. Sometimes, sometimes those dimensions begin to overlap. When Christ dies on the cross, the curtain, the curtain in the temple, the curtain they put, separate the holy of holies from the holy place was ripped not from top to bottom. All of a sudden, the heavenly dimension penetrated the physical one, didn't it? And the truth of the gospel. The truth. And, and so Hebrews goes, and it, get, like it gets metaphysical. It gets weird. We, we're a little uncomfortable with it. It's like scratching our heads. This is kind of strange. And, and the idea is, is that Christ accomplished Jesus' redemption not merely by physically hanging on a cross, but in his entering the holy place of a tabernacle not made with human hands. I don't, look, I'm talking about stuff, I'm just, I'm just talking. <laughs> I, I think I understand this. Any of you? No, these are, and this is always when we start talking about heavenly dimension. The heavenly dimension is always eluding our, our comprehension. It's always right on the edge of what we can grasp, but it's there. And, and the certainty and the hope I have as a sinner is founded not merely on what happened in, outside of Jerusalem in 33 AD, but in an eternal place, an eternal dimension. And I'm invited into all the joy and certainty that that means it implies. That something is done, done in ways and in dimensions that are greater than I can perceive. Praise him. <laughs> Praise him. He's worthy of praise. And the heavenly dimension we're, we're, being, we're being invited into here, it, 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 it makes sense. Jesus, Jesus was, look, it, you know, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, he's the, he's the ace. You know, anybody who was in the Sanhedrin or a leader of the Jewish people at that time, it wasn't uncommon. I remember one of my Hebrew professors said, he met a young man along the Dead Sea when he was touring Jerusalem. A young man studying to be a, 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 in the, studying to be a rabbi who had memorized the book of Isaiah in Hebrew. It happens to this day. It was uncommon for men to have memorized the entire Torah. This is not unheard of. Book of Deuteronomy, definitely. Wow. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? It's a pretty impressive feat. So that's Nicodemus. And he gets, he doesn't even get an inch with Jesus of understanding. Because <laughs> Jesus tells him he has to be born again he has to be there has to be a spiritual rebirth and he says you see the trees move you see the move and, and you don't know what moves them you know it's wind you can see it you can't see the wind though but you know the wind went by because the trees start to move now we all know what wind is in these days but you know um yeah i, I I was going to talk about uh, how little science even knows about the universe. I, I will say this. Um, science, there's something called dark matter and dark energy, if you've ever heard of it. But we only understand or perceive 5% of the matter in the universe. That's well-established fact. 95% of it, we have no idea what it is. But we see the trace of its movement. So it is in the spiritual world. And what man discovers today as he looks in the cosmos is again and again echoes the words of my Savior. There's a heavenly reality, a heavenly dimension acting on you and me and all of us around us. And its, it's, it's movement is there. But the good news here is that God comes 
to give birth. You know that born again passage? Uh, there's another way you can translate the word born again in Greek, and that's born from above. That's one of the translations, to be born from above. It kind of makes sense in this, doesn't it? And, the, and what, what Jesus has invited us into is this heavenly life born in us. You know, it's interesting, when we come to this text that we're, we've been dwelling in uh, here, and look in verse tw- uh, 19 and 20 of that second text, Ephesians 1, 15 through 20. And after he's prayed this, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness? This is what he's asking him to know, asking us to know. This is what we're praying for, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Uh, I love the us word, I think one of the translations says. Who believe according to, as a, in other words, as, a, as an image of, or like this, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And this is where this idea that having been born again now, there's a heavenly dimension to, to Tim. And Tim's sitting there in the pew, and, and, and yet he, 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 his butt can't feel the fact that he's sitting in a heavenly dimension as well. Because he's been born again, born from above. And you know, uh, anybody who says that the age of miracles has ended is lying through their teeth. Because it's a miracle that Tim knows God. <laughs> and it's a miracle that I do. And that miracle was the first taste of resurrection when this dead heart was renewed and reborn by the power of God. Praise him. That's the business of God. This is why we ought to be aroused into compassion because that is available for all the people you love and the people you, just, the people you want to see these things in. The miracles of God are present and we need to be praying for them and seeking them and a part of them. Oh my goodness, how exciting this could be. I, look, this is, what I, you know, this is what I'm praying for. This is what I'm hoping for. And, you know, it's funny, when we, we get to this point, we realize that, and, and I tell this people, everybody I ever shared the gospel with, I always said this little line, I say, you heard me say it the other day, I think, uh, to, to somebody that you care about, Steffi, and that is, I can't create spiritual life. Not in my, not, not in my power, not in my ability. I have no power to do that. I can be a catalyst. I can stand here and midwife it. I can stand here and facilitate it. I can stand here and pray for it. I can say all the words that I know you need to hear to enact it. And that's all you can do at work, bro. That's all we can do. And yet, when we do this faithfully, you know, I, talk, I call it sideways evangelism. And, you know, it can, it, 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 you know it's funny. I, you, know, you, can always, you can always tell when there's spiritual death around you because I, I, well, I can always tell because I'm always start talking about all the odd things God's doing with me spiritually to people who don't know Him. And they always sit there and go, and they don't say anything. What are they going to say? And you think, well, Chris, I, I, I'm not worried about interpreting it to them because I know my God gives spiritual life from above. The heavenly dimension can penetrate here. Because he wills it, and he seeks it, and he does it. And Nicodemus, with all of his understanding, was a beggar at the feet of Jesus. Couldn't understand a thing, and we're still in the same place. But, but, ah, but, ah, all this heavenly place talk, ah, it's all this wonderful God saying, come hither, my sister, come hither, brothers, come, come here, come and speak to me of the things you want for the people you love and for this city. Come and speak to me about this. Because in the heavenly places becomes an invitation to prayer. An invitation to what access you have. 
That really brings us to the final point here. We need to perceive our earthly life through this heavenly lens. I think we need to become so heavenly-minded we're finally some earthly good, as it were. With a whole new perspective. Well, let's look. The, the, the idea of being seated, you all know what that means, you know. In, in a throne room, the person sitting is the person who's in charge. <laughs> That's the idea here. And to be seated is, is the ultimate privilege in the throne room. The throne room of the Almighty is the same. And in the ancients, and these are metaphors for, for, for power, but the one who is seated is the one who everybody's waiting on, who everybody is serving. This is, the, this is the posture that Christ takes here. But then look at, look at Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, uh, 6 and 7, he raised us up with him, raised us up with him. Resurrection happened when you came to Christ, brother. Resurrection happened in you, in the heavenly dimension. And seated us with him. What's the purpose of this heavenly perspective of the supernatural reality? And, and my desire to compel you to, to, to earnestly portray it to you. It, look, this, honestly, we cannot reckon, I, I don't think we can get our minds quite, we might not be ready for this, but the implication is, is that you are enthroned. The invitation is you are, there's a sense of, you are being given the place of power, privilege, and the Lord is waiting on you. <laughs> and the angels beckon to you. It is written that we will judge angels. That makes sense. What makes sense there? This idea of being seated is an invitation to, to affirming uh, the, uh, what the power we have in heavenly places. Now, it's kind of funny. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, and, and you know, you can get into some pretty weird, uh, you know, I, my dear sister was talking about the, the demon of alcoholism and the demon of, of pornography and the demon. The scriptures never talk like that. They, they never fill in those blanks. And don't let other people fill them in for you. I, I, there's a lot of imaginative pictures out there of what these heavenly powers are and angelology and demonology. And it's, it's just, we, if we needed to know, he would have told us. <laughs> we don't need to know. So it's not necessary for you to have a vital access in spiritual, into the spiritual dimension. It is not necessary for you to know or understand it. It just isn't. We are given as much as we need to know about this in the scriptures. But a lot of times we don't even live up to what we, we have known, right? what we're given, right? And a lot of times we, 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 we even shy away from it as, uh, as, uh, as good, good logical scientific types. But there's this idea of seated. What does this mean? Security. <laughs> Security in him. I, I think about too, um, um, did, you, did you hear that? I love that. The line from the Come Ye Sinners, it's, um, it's line th three. It's the third line, second stanza. If you tarry till you're better. Let's begin, let's begin with the first line. It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you'll never come at all. I see Christians stuck in that very place, don't you? Just kind of like, well... I'll, I'll, I'll engage in that heavenly dimension when I, when I, I just need to get some stuff together. You know, I, I've, got, I've got some real garbage in my heart, and I, I really know it, and I... You know, you imagine you have a spiritual perspective there, but you really don't. You're not, you're not viewing the heavenly dimension and what is actually claimed. And look, you know, 
You know what this means? It means grace is so much bigger than what you thought it was. Hey, look, let me tell you something. The idea that the man standing before you is seated in the heavenly places is insane when you look at my soul and the garbage in my heart. Unless, unless grace is bigger and greater and more wonderful than we ever imagined. See, that's the heavenly perspective, isn't it? That's the heavenly dimension coming full roar, full joy for us. The heavenly perspective, can, it entails and implies us holding on to grace with both hands. And I know I've got it all. I've got all of him for all of me and my sin. Seated is an invitation to stop preparing to go to heaven and go into that, heaven and, and that heavenly dimension which you have so much freedom and access and just go. Go and confess how much you have failed. There's grace, grace greater than all your sin. Second, this idea of a seed is an authority image. Now, look, the scriptures try to say some unusually beautiful things. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Elsewhere, it says that in Jude, we're not, we're not meant to have, be disrespectful to, to, to heavenly beings. Even the archangel Michael, even the great archangel, was careful when face-to-face with the devil and said what? Does anybody remember what he said? The Lord rebuke you. But we can say the Lord rebuke you. And just, we're promised, because we're such little weaklings, <laughs> that if we just resist the devil, he will flee from us. And how many of you just don't even resist? You know? What is it Oscar Wilde says? The one thing I can't resist is being tempted. Let's not be like that. Let's not be like that. And the reason that that promise is given to us about the most powerful being ever created outside of the Trinity is because you're seated. He has to be very careful approaching the throne of God. Even he, even he. Seated. You know, everything that this, this text begins to say, it begins to say about the whole church. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't think we get the seated concept and dimension until we realize we're sitting together. A lot of us, you know, a lot of us, like there's a lot of triumphalism in Christianity. A lot of people want to sell you, you know, get into your triumph in Christ. And I don't want to do that. I, this is something that's a promise to us together. And I love that. You want to be seated in the heavenly dimension and, 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 and understand and be able to perceive heavenly realities. You're only going to do it when you are connected vitally to his people. Elders, beware. We have a great charge and a holy charge, don't we? Church, beware your elders because they have a holy responsibility over you to which you should submit. Seated. This is where power in the church and the keys of the kingdom make sense. Seated. And then finally, we, I, I can't even go into all this. I want to go into more. You know, there's the, 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 there was the, there's the passage about our, we're, not, our, we're not against flesh and blood and, and this idea that's in verse, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 7 and Ephesians 3, 10 that you and I being seated is a testimony to other heavenly beings. What the heck does that mean? 
Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> I don't think any of us do. We're, we're, we, all we know is we're a part of a large interplay that we barely guessed. This is what's happening in Daniel, where Daniel said, you know what, an angel comes to Daniel and says, I was on my way to you as you began to, pr began to pray 21 days ago, but the prince of Persia, he stalled me, and then until, our, until Michael came, and then I have to go from here to the, to the prince of Greece. And he's talking about an interplay between angelic beings, God, God and angelic beings, and demonic. Does, does anybody understand this? We don't need to understand it. We just know it's true. It's one of the dimensions and features of life in San Francisco and Boston and Ukraine and Kiev, all these places. There's another dimension. Becoming aware of it, becoming aware that it's there now is, is part of learning how to trust God in it. You know, uh, and then finally, the, I think in this final, the final release, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I, to me, that's just such a... <sighs> this is the place where the heavenly perspective and dimension finally is such a gift to you. Because it suddenly uncaps and kind of releases you from all the things you worry about. You know, we all worry about caught up in, you know, will we get the house? Or what's my boss think? Or what, or what, what are they going to make a rule against us? Or are they going to tax the church? Or are they going to, you know, and we, oh, what are we going to do about the liberals? What are you going to do about the conservatives? Who knows? <laughs> you know, and we'll pick your poison, right? And then this is where God is wanting the heavenly perspective of a heavenly dimension to speak peace to. Because Christ's victory there is certain, secure, and real. And our struggle is not against these, it's against another dimension where victory has been won in an eternal tabernacle. Wow! I think this is the... You know, I am. I'll end with this. I, I am. You know, uh, I think, uh, um, one of the enemies of Israel was having a really hard time. Because every time they made a plot, we're going to go down this valley, we're going to attack at dawn, and, and, we'll, and, and nobody will know we're coming. It's going to be a surprise. And the king of Syria would set up his army to do it, and then uh, the Israelites were ready. They knew they were coming. This happened again and again. Until finally, the king of Syria says, who is the spy among you? He looked at his counselors, who of you is telling on us and giving away our plans. And somebody says, you know, uh, King, uh, actually, <laughs> there's a prophet in Israel uh, named Elisha. Uh, he, he, God tells him all the details of what you're doing. And he tells, he tells, he's telling on you. So he sends his arm, he sends his, he sends his soldiers. Going to deal with this, going to deal with this extra, this extra tech <laughs> right? Which is how we would think of it. You know, like, well, they've got some tech we don't have. And uh, back then, it, they were thought about in spiritual categories like we don't today. But we're going to go and we're going to eliminate that part of their technological edge. And the, and the servant gets up in the morning. and We don't know his name. And he, he sees the soldiers. And, and the gig's up. There's no... The prophets don't have bodyguards. <laughs> A lot of them would have survived if they did. <laughs> That's not the point. And then Elisha prays. And you know, it's funny. 
Elijah prays the same thing that Paul prays here. It's just a more primitive form, isn't it? We're saying open eyes of our eyes of your heart. I'm praying for each one of you by name, for God to open the eyes of your heart so you will see these things. And then, and then Elisha says, open his eyes so we can see him. What does the servant see? What does he finally see? And actually, I remember one person telling me he's been in a city called Dothan. Dothan is, is a little town, a small, it's a shallow valley, it's not real deep. But all the hills around, you can see all, there's all a bunch of little dimpled hills all around the little city of Dothan. You can, to this day, you can see those hills. And that servant was given a privilege when, he, when Elisha asked for his eyes to be opened. As I'm praying for you, the eyes of your heart to be opened. What did he see? Thousands of fiery, burning chariots all around. I, I, want, I, want, I want to see that. No, no, I don't really, I'm not interested in seeing visions like that, because if I saw that, I'd probably think I was crazy. And I would invite you to think the same. But, but I want to have that perspective, that living perspective, that living awareness that perceives greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Praise him. Let's pray. Now, Father, I had that feeling like when I, um, that feeling I get when I put too much food in my mouth. I can barely chew it all. That's what this feels like tonight. There's so much here, so much in your scripture. We just long for you to unite what's so fractured. We, We live in that fault line of that fracture, Father. You know that. You sent your son to die on that fault line, that fracture between heaven and hell, heaven and this earth, I mean, heaven and this world, heaven and this, the heavenly dimension and the, the physical one. You sent your son to die on that fracture and the cross. We live in that fracture. Help us to see. We ask for this very thing that he asked here. Open the eyes of our hearts, enlighten us, and to see, to know, to perceive, to encourage each other in the perception, to go to you quickly, to ask for the dead folks we love, to have be raised from the dead, to ask that for ourselves, to ask for new life in us. Yes, Father, we ask for that. We ask for that in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.